his counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday, and tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all but all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence, and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could, and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He did not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return. His head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze. I read that to our brother Mark Catlin yesterday. I asked him what he thought. He sat in silence for a bit. He leaned forward and said, I'm a terrible dad. <laughs> it's hard to not feel that way reading about John Patton's father. Mark's not a bad dad. There's something I think we all see from this, that good and godly fathers love their children. They seek the best for them. They do not wish evil upon them. They fix their gaze upon them. And they certainly do not abandon them. And yet, as we heard in our scripture reading, as we will consider and reflect in our short time together, Jesus expresses and experiences abandonment at the hands of his Father. Why? It's just one verse, but I will ask you to stand with me in reverence of God's word as I read. Matthew records this for us, Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you even for this Good Friday now that we can think about how your son was abandoned on our behalf, that we might be reconciled to you. We pray that we would not take our sin lightly, nor his sacrifice on our behalf. We do pray, should any non-Christians be here today as they hear the gospel, we pray that you would give them the gifts of faith and repentance, that they would turn from their sins to find your loving embrace. I pray that you would speak to me th this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So if good and godly fathers do not forsake their sons, 
Why is it happening here? What is happening to the son that would cause the father to abandon him? This is, after all, the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. What would compel the father to send his son for such a mission as this? Why would the son agree to it? We got our clues all throughout our readings this evening. You can either flip in your Bibles or just in your bulletin. Back to our first scripture reading. Page 5, we get the clues we need even there in the first four verses, kind of a grid for understanding what's happening leading up to the crucifixion and there upon the cross. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, or rather Matthew records, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. The first thing to note about Jesus' death is that it corresponds with Passover, Israel annually would celebrate the fact that God had brought the Hebrews up out of Egypt, out of their oppression in slavery, and made them his people, giving them his law and his land. But it was only possible for sinful people to be in relationship with the Holy God as God passed over their sins, which was only possible because innocent lambs had died in their place. You see, Israel was as guilty as Egypt, And yet God had treated the lamb as though it were the guilty one, punishing it so that he might pass over the sins of the people. We might say that the lamb was forsaken so that Israel could be embraced. Jesus goes on there, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders and the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Here's the second thing to note. The religious leaders don't just want to kill Jesus, they, no, they, but they do. They want to arrest him and try him like a criminal. Have you ever considered the nature of Jesus' death? Like they, they didn't just shank him in an alley. They were wanting to prove in their mind that he was guilty of crimes in a courtroom and to punish him like a criminal. And so what's happening in the crucifixion, there, it's as though there are two parties that are, that are or actors that are at play. The religious leaders who conspire to arrest Jesus, to try him in their court of law, and to kill him. And this is what's plain to see in the chapters that we read and what we often think about as we consider Good Friday. But there is a parallel courtroom we're seeing that's happening. It's invisible to the naked eye, where Jesus is also on trial in the divine court. And though he's innocent, he will be treated as though he's guilty in place of his people. So we have these two parallel courts. The son is on trial in both of them, one earthly and corrupt, the other heavenly and just. Jesus is on trial in both. And so first we consider this first courtroom scene. We see it immediately at the end of chapter 26 as Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, Israel's um, religious leaders, their council, in this case, like a court of law. They ask Jesus if he is the Messiah. He says that he is indeed the Son of Man, the one that we read about in Daniel chapter 7, like the Ancient of Days coming on the clouds with power. It's enough for them that they rip their robes. They declare, verse 65, that he is blasphemed, the high priest says. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? The Sanhedrin responds, he deserves death. That, of course, is not enough for them. They spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who is it that hit you? 
Jesus' courtroom scene continues in Matthew chapter 27 as he stands before Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Now, Pilate struggles to find Jesus guilty of anything. He says this as much in verse 23 as he's asking the people who they would rather have released as part of their custom, Barabbas or Jesus. They say, they say release Barabbas, have Jesus crucified. Pilate says, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Pilate gives into the demands of the people and finally considers Jesus guilty of something like insurrection. And the kind of plaque above his head, the charge, the crime, it says Jesus, the king of the Jews. Before that, of course, he's stripped and beaten. He's spat on and mocked. Though they cannot prove him guilty of any crimes, Israel and Rome try him as a criminal. They declare him guilty as a criminal. They crucify him as a criminal among other criminals. He was rejected and abandoned by the people he was sent to save. When we think about the horrific events of Good Friday, we're likely to conjure up a physical image, right? The beatings, the crown of thorns, the length of the nails, a body so disfigured that you wouldn't recognize it. It's as though our mind fixates on the first trial, and this was part of his suffering. It was brutal, it was unjust, but it's only half of the story. It's only one courtroom scene, and it's only a small part of Jesus' suffering. Six hours after nails were driven into his hands and he hung on a tree, drowning in his own blood. In between gasps for air, in complete agony, he cries out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is the height of Jesus' suffering, the height of his atoning work. Here, Jesus, the mediator between God and man, the God-man, encounters God in Arabic, not as Abba Father, as you would expect, but as Eli, his God and his judge. Whereas he was more or less unwilling to speak before his earthly judges, here he cries out before God, Why have you abandoned me? Jesus is experiencing the consequences, not of his sin, but of the sins of his people. In the corrupt earthly court, they labored to prove his guilt. They weren't successful in doing so, so that they might kill him. In the divine courtroom, God knows Jesus' innocence. And yet he treats him as the guilty one in place of the guilty ones. He is crushed on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 53 brings together these two uh, parallel courtroom scenes and in a sense pulls back the veil from God's perspective to explain to us what's happening there at Calvary. Isaiah 53 beginning in verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. And he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. He had done no violence. He had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. What Jesus suffered over the course of Good Friday at the hands of lawless men was excruciating. It was more than most could bear. But what Jesus experienced at the hands of his lawful God was beyond words. It was more than anyone else could bear. Mortal wounds from mortal men pale in comparison to the infinite justice of an infinite God. We are talking about a skin graze compared to the full fury of God's wrath. His righteous anger toward the sins of his people was poured out on Jesus in full. It is, as we just sang, many hands were raised to wound him. Pilate, Rome, Caiaphas, Israel. None would interpose to save him, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Friends, Jesus did not sweat drops of blood in the garden because he feared Pilate or Caiaphas. It was because he feared God. Though Jesus knew what was coming, he finally tastes the bitter cup that was reserved for him. He is forsaken by the Father. The Holy One cannot commune with the Son while he bears the sins of his people. This is the height of the son's suffering as God treats him, the innocent one, as guilty. As God treats him, the beloved son, as a criminal. As God treats him, the object of eternal divine pleasure with displeasure, the father turns his face away. Jesus cries out, why have you abandoned me? Because he is according to his humanity, abandoned, cut off from God. It was the only means by which God could save a people for himself. So while the Jewish leaders thought they were killing a blasphemer, while Pilate thought he was quelling the mob, what God was doing was treating his son like a sinner so that sinners might become sons and daughters of God. The son is forsaken that the father might embrace sinners, us. There on the cross, divine justice was satisfied so that in the courtroom of God, we might be considered innocent, righteous, and adopted. If you're visiting us this evening as a non-Christian, we're glad that you've chose to be with us on Good Friday. This is what Good Friday is about, and this is what the gospel is. We believe that God himself became a man, that he lived perfectly in our place, and yet he died on the cross in our place He received the punishment for our sins. And the good news that we celebrate every single Sunday is that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, declaring his innocence for all to see, his vindication. And now he offers us forgiveness of sins and life and adoption as a gift. There's nothing left for us to do. It was finished in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. We would encourage you to Repent of your sins to turn from them and to trust in Jesus this very day. And if you want to learn more about the gospel of Jesus Christ, any one of our members would be happy to answer your questions after the service. But back to our initial questions, what happened to Jesus 
He bore our sins in God's wrath. As sin bearer, Jesus found himself in the position that we were in before we knew him, that we would find ourselves in for eternity apart from him. He was abandoned, expelled from the presence of God. Why? It was the only means by which a holy God could save a sinful people for himself. But what would compel the Son to undertake this? Why would the Father send his Son for such a mission? Friends, it is the love of God. You see, the justice of God demands payment, but it didn't demand that God himself pay the price. And yet God, in his love, paid the price himself. So why would the Father send the Son? Why would the Son willingly accept? Why would the Father crush the Son on behalf of his enemies? Because he loves us. Certainly we see a shadow of divine love in John Patton's father, clinging to his son, praying for his son, gazing upon his son. Friends, that pales in comparison with the Father's infinite love of his son. It pales in comparison with the Father's eternal, infinite love of his people, such that he would actually be willing to abandon Christ, if even for a moment, that we might gain him forever. This is the good news of Good Friday, that Jesus was abandoned, that we might be embraced because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you would send your son, your only beloved unique son, to become a man, to suffer on our behalf, and to bear your wrath, that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might stand righteous before you, that we no longer have to fear. We can know that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Again, we pray for any who might be visiting us who don't know you, who are not trusting in and relying upon your Son. We do pray that they would turn from their sins and that they would trust in Jesus this very night. It is in the name of your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen.